Well, I invite you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges. The book of Judges. If you're not familiar with where Judge it is, Judges is, it's the seventh book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. You can follow along with the insert found in your bulletin. Indeed, it is a daunting insert. Today marks the beginning of a new study for us here at Ascension through this Old Testament book of history. And before I begin reading it this morning and um, and getting into the details of our passage, I want to set the stage uh, for a few minutes. And this is going to be a lengthy introduction, but it's part of the sermon, so uh, you can just sit still for a moment and uh, listen as we set the stage for what you're about to hear in Judges chapter 1. Let me first begin with a rhetorical question. What do you think of when you think of the book of Judges. Many of you grew up in the church. What do you think of when you think of the book of Judges? I suspect that some of you, like me, who grew up in the church, who grew up going to Sunday school, maybe you think about the judges themselves, right? You think about the stories. You think about Samson. What a memorable, vivid story that is. You think about Gideon and his fleece. Maybe you think about Deborah, the godly prophetess. Maybe you think about some other crazy story that's intertwined in the midst of those stories. We love our heroes, don't we? And I think at times we're drawn to think of our heroes. 1.2 billion dollars That's how much Avengers Endgame made in its first weekend of opening. 1.2 billion with a B. And of course, there's a lot of fun action. There's a lot of incredible CGI in there. But we love the storyline. We love the storyline of our superhero movies because in our heart of hearts, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we know that we are broken. We know that our world is broken and we long for heroes. We long for saviors. Well, those those heroes that you think of, maybe when you think of the book of Judges, Samson, Deborah, Gideon, they are actually the not-so-superheroes of the book of Judges. We will see that there are times when they do laudable, God-honoring things, but mostly they are broken. And the people that they are seeking to lead are broken. And so mostly, the heroes or the not-so-superheroes heroes of the book of Judges point us to our need for a better hero, an eternal hero. There's no doubt that this book that we are launching into today is a difficult book. The few people close to me that I mentioned that I was preaching the book of Judges, their comment to me was, what are you thinking And maybe I haven't been thinking clearly, 
But this I know, and the people who challenged me and joked about that would agree with me as well. This I know, that all Scripture is profitable for us. And yes, this book is going to prove to be challenging, but there's something for us here. There's something important for us here in this book. Now, most of us know, and maybe this is what you think of when you think of the book of Judges, you think of the very last verse of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's not talking about the world. It's talking about God's people. And as we work through this book, we are going to see that in its vivid, gory detail. This book is violent. It's in the midst of a holy war. This book is at times oppressive, particularly to women. And it gets progressively worse the further we get in. Now, for that reason, and also because of, of the length of the book, I don't want to get overly bogged down in this book for the next 18 months. And so, we're going to do, one, we're going to do a couple different things. One is we're going, to, we're going to take big chunks, and two, we're going to skip around a little bit. You could call this studies in Judges. We're not going to cover every, as they say in Hebrew, every jot and every tittle in this book. But we're going to hopefully understand the flow of the narrative and understand what is going on in the life of God's people and what God wants us to learn because he put it in his word. He put this dark period in his word. As we begin, what's going on in the life of God's people is this. Joshua is gone. The year is around 1400 B.C., now, you should faintly have the events of Joshua somewhere in your memory because we looked at the book of Joshua uh, just not even two years ago now. The generation of conquest that Joshua led and that Joshua was a part of is now dying, and the glue that once held the people together is dissolved. But pockets of resistance remain as they claim the promised land, the land that God, that Yahweh had given to His people. So as they lay claim of the remaining land, as their disobedience results in opposition, thorns in the flesh, as we will read in a moment, the Lord, in His grace, Yahweh gives them judges, deliverers, 12 of them, and we're going to look at them as we go through this book. Now, when we think of a judge, you think immediately, especially our kids, you're thinking of a, of a gavel, you're thinking of a robe, you're thinking of a courtroom. That's not what I want you to think of when, I, when you think of the judges that are found here. The judges that we'll read about, they're not serving primarily in a judicial capacity. They're serving in a military capacity. Deborah is the only one who serves in a judicial capacity, and none of them are actually called judges. The only time the word judge is used in the book actually refers to Yahweh Himself. And so when you think of judges, think of deliverers, saviors, 
heroes, broken ones. There's a lot of history here, but as one writer that I read this week said, well, this is theological history. It's not just history for history's sake. The Lord is wanting to convey to us the spiritual state of His people. And in doing so, I hope to bring home and challenge our spiritual state as well. And so all of that by way of introduction, here we go. Uh, Judges chapter 1, verse 1. I invite you to remain stand, or excuse me, I write you to stand for the reading of God's Word, but I warn you, it's about five minutes of reading, and so uh, you're welcome to stay in your seat, but those of you who are able, I invite you to stand and listen to the reading of God's Word. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. And Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adoni Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adoni Bezek fled, but they pursued him. Excuse me, they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterwards, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negeb and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negeb. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the people of Judah, from the city of Palms, into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negeb near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with his te- its territory. And the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. 
And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. And the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of that city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and named its city and, and, named, and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, nor the inhabitants of Dor or its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Elab, or Akzib, or of Helba, or of Afik, or of Rahab. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Eris, in Ijalon, and in Sha'albim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the borders of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham, and he said, I have brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bakim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Amen. This is for the Lord. Glory. Thanks for bearing with me sitting down. Never felt so good, did it? Collectively, as a people, we all have those moments in our history that define us. July 21st, 1969. Some of you may remember 
hearing or watching the news when the first man walked on the moon. That was before my time. So for me, for my generation, I definitively remember where I was standing and who told me the news that the U.S. had been attacked on September 11th, 2001. Because of that day, we forever live in what is called a post-9-11 world. And our kids don't even know what that means. I've tried to tell them that there was a time where I used to meet my grandma at the gate when she got off her plane to visit us. For our children, that's just not even part of their reality. They don't know anything different. Our text begins with such a defining moment collectively for the people of God, for the nation of Israel. Judges chapter 1, the first five words, after the death of Joshua. Just as Exodus begins with after the death of Joseph, just as Joshua begins with after the death of Moses, so Judges begins by marking the death of God's chosen leader, Joshua, who led God's people to take a hold or to begin to take a hold of the promises that were theirs in the inheritance of the land of Canaan. Now, Joshua, as we know, as we study together as a church, Joshua was far from perfect, but he was a strong leader who pointed people to God's promises. And under his leadership, God did give them their land. Now, here we are in Judges. As I said earlier, pockets of resistance remain. The job is not quite done. God has been faithful. Now, how will God's people do in their faithfulness? in this post-Joshua reality. Deuteronomy 7 is when the Lord instructed His people concerning their entrance into the land. When the Lord God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away the nations before you and He goes through the list of nations, when the Lord God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Now, let's begin this study, and let's begin by talking about this head-on, about that very phrase, because in a world of extremism, I think we need to hear about that phrase. What is this about? What, what What is the Lord of heaven and earth Why is he telling his people, show no mercy? We don't have time to fully unpack it, but it's about two things. This is about judgment, and this is about holiness. That's why the Lord is demanding utter destruction of his enemies. Judgment and holiness. See, first of all, these, these nations, they were not innocent. They were incredibly wicked, full of 
sorcery, full of wizardry, full of nations who were sacrificing their children to false gods. And Yahweh, the one true God, the Lord of heaven and earth, had had enough, and He has every right to bring judgment upon those whom He has made who act wickedly in His sight. But secondly, this is about holiness. Israel is Yahweh's treasured possession. Yahweh is jealous for them, unlike any other people. And he knows the effects of surrounding nations with their gods, with their wickedness. And so he says they must be gone. So while we, as sit, while we sit here this morning as new covenant people, as the church of Jesus Christ, this certainly isn't our mandate today. It was the mandate of this day. And it was not ethnic cleansing, and it was not unjust, but it was holy, and it had a holy purpose. And so we come to this first chapter and to this conquest that Yahweh has demanded of His people, invited His people to be a part of. In chapter 1, that chapter we just read is an interesting mix of, of stories that lay the groundwork for, for what is to come. It all starts off so well with the people inquiring of Yahweh for guidance. Okay, Joshua's gone. Now what? Now who is going to lead us? But right out of the gate, what I want you to see is that cracks begin to form in the life of God's people. And so as we work through this for the next few minutes, I want us to, to do so around two ways to respond to the word. This is a message for you, the church. It's a warning and an invitation. So we have two points, a warning and an invitation. And the warning is this, recognize the significance of small things. I think that's what Judges 1 teaches us. Recognize the significance of small things. A fire starts with a spark. A flood starts with one drip. Small things left unchecked become huge problems. And in this first episode of the book of Judges, we see the beginnings of a trajectory that will lead a nation into a downward spiral. And it begins with Judah. God says to Judah, okay, Judah, you're the one to lead. You go, take a hold of the land. Does Judah immediately go? Judah goes to Simeon and says, well, let me get Simeon's help. Simeon, you come with me, and then I'll go with you. And that's not what the Lord told him to do, but the Lord does bless Judah in his conquest. And so he and Simeon, they chase down this local king, Adoni Bezek, which just means Lord of Bezek. A lot of these ancient peoples, they had their own governing kings. And what are they supposed to do with Adoni Bezek? They're supposed to wipe him out, 
remove him, right? But instead, they adopt a pagan practice, a disgusting pagan practice, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And that wasn't to torture him. That was a common pagan practice to remove the ability of this king to ever hold a sword, to ever run again in battle. He was done. His response is telling. He didn't see this as vengeful. He saw it as karma, right? I did the same thing to kings, and now it's being done to me. And while it may be just, an eye for an eye, just such as Leviticus 24 says, it still is disobedience. And the conquest seems to get back on track after this uh, event with Adoni Bezek until verse 19. Verse 19, he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of fire, excuse me, chariots of iron. And what God's people should have said is this, chariots of iron, so what? Jericho had a wall, and we had trumpets. We've got Yahweh. So what? So we ask, what's exactly going on here in verse 19? Well, listen to Joshua's words way back in Joshua 17, verse 17. Joshua said to God's people, the hill country shall be yours, for you shall drive out the Canaanites though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. Now, does that sound like a maybe from Joshua? You'll be good until you meet the folks with the iron chariots, then you got to stop. No, Joshua relayed the certain promise of Yahweh. The issue is not the iron chariots. The issue is that Judah albeit behind the scenes here in Judges chapter 1, we don't see it fleshed out for us. Judah is not trusting Yahweh. The cracks are already forming. It's not that they couldn't defeat the chariots of iron. It's that they wouldn't defeat the chariots of iron. And after this, the wheels just start flying off. Slowly, little by little, God's people are moving from conquest to compromise. Recognize the significance of the small things. You can even imagine their justification for why they are making the decisions they're making and what God has required them to do. The house of Joseph in verses 22 to 26. The house of Joseph is busy making alliances, right? They let this man from Bethel go. He builds a neighboring city in the land of the Hittites. In other words, they didn't drive him out. They simply moved him to another place. But it makes political sense, right? I mean, it makes political sense. This guy, we showed mercy to him. We might need him down the road. Maybe we should have some allies. Yahweh, you must not have thought of this. Meanwhile, the tribe of Ephraim in verse 29 and Asher in verse 32, they are making friends. Because it's much easier to simply ask them to move nicely and just make room for us than to totally wipe them out. 
And then finally, Manasseh, Zebulun, Naphtali, they decide that slaves are the way to go. Beth Shemesh, the house of Shemesh, which is the sun god. Beth Anath, the house of Anath, which is the goddess of war. Pagan, ungodly people, terrible religion, terrible influences, and God's people reason, well, why should we just kill these folks when we can force them to work for us for free? That seems like a better idea. Yahweh must have missed this great idea. And so they're kind of doing what Yahweh said. They're taking over, but they're not doing what Yahweh said. And all of this results in verses 35 and 36. The bottom line in these verses is the Amorites are calling the shots. The Amorites are determining the borders of the land that is God's people's. You see, brothers and sisters, conquest has turned into compromise, has turned into comfortable coexistence, and all of this because of just small decisions, small decisions that were actually not so small because they were in direct contradiction to what God had told His people to do. And yet, through a mixture of unbelief, through a mixture of forgetfulness, through a mixture of blatant rebellion, God's people were already veering off course. Idolatry had been planted, and it's just a matter of time when this idolatry is going to take full bloom. What is this you have done? The angel cries in chapter 2, verse 2. Well, let's just stop right there for a moment. Recognize the significance of the small things. Church, there is a message for us, a warning for us in this. In a pluralistic society that flaunts tolerance as its greatest virtue, we are too prone ourselves to comfortably compromising through a lack of discernment, through accommodation. We not only disobey the Lord who is making His bride blameless before Him, but we weaken our witness before the world that needs truth. We are called to be set apart. We are called to have different priorities, different loves, different agendas. And yet this is a passage that calls us to stop, to sit back, to reflect what small things, small decisions have we made that have weakened us. It's often a slow shift as it was with the life of God's people. We are reminded that in our study of the churches of Revelation, when we looked at those churches and the message there, right? Ephesus lost its love, but it didn't happen overnight. It happened gradually. The Laodiceans didn't become lukewarm overnight. It happened gradually through small compromises catering to public opinion, generational arrogance, 
that dismisses thousands of years of the church's interpretation of things. We must be watchful. We must be discerning. We must know and we must stand for the truth. We must recognize the significance of the small things. And of course, this warning can be carried into our individual lives as well. Small decisions that lack integrity in your life, that ultimately are disobedience, that ultimately are declarations of idolatry or unbelief, thinking that you know better than God. Decisions that leave a jealous God grieving over His people. We'll talk more about idolatry in the weeks to come. But the angel here declares, this is going to be trouble for you. This is going to be a snare. A snare is a small, simple thing. But once it gets around your neck, around your leg, and you struggle, it gets tighter and tighter and has its effect. Recognize the significance of the small things. Obedience to God is lived in the ordinary, in the You've heard me say this 10,000 times, but I'm going to say it again. It's lived in the 10,000 moments of our lives. What to make a priority, what to say no to, how much to give, when to look away, when to ask for help. The small things, brothers and sisters, are not insignificant, though they may seem so at first. This is a warning This is a warning shot across our bows. The Lord saying, recognize the significance of the small things in your own individual lives, small compromises, and in our collective life together. Because the small things are not so insignificant. And we'll close with this. 2,000 years ago, a baby was born in a small, insignificant town in the Middle East, and it all seemed so small at first until it wasn't. And that's where we close today. Rejoice in God's covenant commitment to you. As you recognize the significance, the importance of the small things, rejoice in God's covenant commitment to you. As God's people are sliding down this spiral, Yahweh sends this heavenly messenger, an angel, and he comes from Gilgal, the exact place where the Lord met with his people and made covenant with them in Joshua chapter 5. And it's a verdict. You have disobeyed people. You have broken the covenant, and now the consequences of your disobedience will come upon you, and it's not going to be pretty. But here's the thing. God's people began to abandon him, but God didn't abandon his people. But we ask how? How can the just judge still be the one who seeks and saves the ungodly? Those who are not just. Well, we read the answer earlier in Romans chapter 3. The answer is found in Jesus. So that he might be, Romans 3, the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
You see, while these generations that we're about to read about in the coming weeks, while they will reap what they have sown, a remnant will remain. And out of that remnant will come a new Israel. Jesus Himself. And Jesus will bring the blessings of covenant obedience to both Jew and Gentile, despite our failure in the small things through His own obedience. But hear this, that doesn't mean that we don't repent. That doesn't mean that we don't weep as God's people wept here. That doesn't mean that we don't fight to obey and strive in the small things, but it does mean that the victory is already ours. And so, yeah, this is a somber start, but it's a start that's undergirded by God's covenant commitment to you in Jesus. We have a hope that these people could only dream of. No matter what you've done, big or small, no matter how many times you've done it, there is forgiveness, there is acceptance, there is new life in Jesus. And I exhort you to walk in that new life, united to Him, striving for faithfulness, for obedience in the small things, knowing that He has been faithful for you. Amen. Let's pray.